Mark 1. Conversations at the speed of sound. On this particular landing, uh, I felt the aircraft land, so I, I did a, a tick for the mech, and next thing there was another bump, and I thought, that's strange. That landing was a good landing. I, we shouldn't have had a second bump there. And I looked out the window, and all I could see was was uh, uh, flames. The voice there of Gordon Johnstone. You're going to hear a little bit of Gordon's story in a moment. Uh, before that, let me welcome you to Mac One, the podcast of the Queensland Air Museum, Caloundra. My name is Gary Hills, I am a QAM volunteer and I'll be your host for this episode where we look at an incident that occurred in 1968 to an Orion, a P-3B Orion aircraft that was due to be delivered to Australia for the RAAF which uh, crashed on landing. And you're going to hear the story uh, from the perspective of Gordon who was on board that day about uh, what happened Gordon Johnston joined me by phone, and so you'll hear his voice uh, with that slightly tinny telephone sound uh, to talk to me about his Air Force career. And we spoke for a long time. It was over an hour. And uh, just for this episode, I have taken out the sections that we talked about particularly that related to the crash of 296, the uh, P3 Orion, and just a little bit of an intro before that of five minutes or so. But that's not to say that the entire story has not been collected and preserved. So for the Oral History Project in time, in due course, the entire uh, one hour of that uh, recording will be made available with a transcript. So that's to come in future in the Oral History Project. But just for today, we're going to focus in on just that one day in 1968, in April, when that P-3B Orion, uh, after only having done 23 hours of flying, uh, came down and uh, came to grief at uh, Moffat Naval Air Station in California. So Gordon uh, went on to... Uh, a long career in the Air Force after this event, of course, and we don't have time to talk about it today, but just quickly, he went back to the Neptunes after coming back to Australia for a while, then was in command uh, as a squadron leader, uh, an AEO with a unit in Sydney. He then went to do quality control for the Barra uh, Sonoboy project and then concluded his career as a squadron leader with over 5,000 hours in the air. A real gentleman. It was lovely to talk to him. So here's a little bit of my conversation with Gordon Johnstone. G'day, Gordon. How are you, Gary? I'm great. Thank you for asking. And thanks so much for joining me because you've got a story to tell that I've been looking forward to hearing. I know little bits about this, but I would just love to hear it, particularly from the point of view of somebody firsthand who was there. So we'll get to that in a second. Let's first of all meet you. Um, wh- where are you from, Gordon? And uh, w- what's your what's your aviation background? Well, I, I was born in Ashfield in Sydney, uh, and my parents uh, bought a house up in uh, Concord West, right. and I lived there for most of my life until I joined the Air Force in uh, June of 1955. did recruit training up at uh, RAF Richmond at that stage. Right. 
I was just short of 20. Okay. Just short of 20. I was born in 1935. And this was 1955, so okay. it was just short of uh, my 20th birthday. And uh, while I was uh, on uh, recruit training, uh, I had joined up as what was then classified as, uh, as uh, aircraftsman minor. Aircraft. In those days, minor. you had to be 21, mm-hmm. right, uh, to be an adult, right. And uh, I was I was an aircraftsman recruit minor. We uh, had a good time up there at Richmond doing rookies, and uh, a runway at Richmond was being done up at, uh, those, uh, in that year. They had a, a mound of dirt at the end of the the prepared section of, of the runway, which about uh, they completed about half of it. One weekend, I I wandered down to the near the the runway just to, to see twenty two squadron, just to see the, watching the the vampires doing circuits and bumps, and uh, one of the uh, the aircraft came in and touched the the top of the mound of dirt, uh, touched it rather hard, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, uh, his starboard wheel broke off because he uh, barreled off down the, the runway and uh, uh, did a bit of a, a 90-degree turn on the wheel into the grass. But what tickled me was that the first person to get to him was the orderly sergeant on his push bike. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, uh, the fire truck eventually came in, and uh, uh, the fire truck, I think, was doing flat out of about 10 miles an hour <laughs> <laughs> and eventually got to him. But fortunately, uh, uh, there was no fire. Mm. And uh, it was okay. I joined up as a uh, an aircraft um, uh, engine mech. I put my application <laughs> in and uh, applied to become a signaller. In uh, 1956, went down to Ballarat to do signaller training, to do the radio side of signaller training. Mm-hmm. And uh, we uh, we were the last course uh, to do the radio side of it at Ballarat. And then in, in the beginning of 1957, we went across to East Sale to do aerial gunnery on the Lincoln aircraft. I see. And for three months, we trained on the, the Lincoln. I was posted to 36 Squadron at Fairburn. They were the Dakotas. Uh, we, uh, we did quite a few uh, exciting uh, trips. Uh, we got into a, a few scrapes in the... In, in the uh, travelling around, uh, uh, trying to land uh, at uh, Townsville on one trip, uh, we, we had to land because we were in a, I think it must have been a cyclone, or very close to it, mm. uh, and we didn't have enough fuel to go anywhere else. We, we did two approaches and couldn't uh, couldn't get in because of the weather, and the skipper said, well, uh, we'll, do, we'll make one more attempt, uh, and if we we can't get in this time, we're going to have to ditch in Townsville Harbour. Uh, try to try to ditch uh, a Dakota mm-hmm. uh, in that kind of weather yeah. in the the ocean uh, it was not something to look forward to. Yeah, so uh, I stood up between the two pilots, uh, and uh, as they approached the 
uh, the runway for the last time, where we would have been the last time. I uh, I saw the lights and yelled out and, and guided the men to uh, onto the end of the runway, and we, we landed, and uh, it was absolutely bucketing down. Mm. Uh, terrible. But anyway, we made it in, in June of 1958. Uh, I was uh, commissioned. Middle of 1959, I got posted to Perth for the Air Training Corps over there mm-hmm. as the uh, squadron training officer uh, in charge of the training mm. for all the training corps cadets in Western Australia. And uh, these guys were were ex uh, World War Two. They had some fantastic stories. It was fascinating for a young bloke like me at that time. At the end of 62, uh, got posted to 11 Squadron because at that stage, uh, being a signaller, uh, the only aircraft uh, to use signallers were the Neptunes uh, at uh, 10 Squadron or 11 Squadron. 10 Squadron at Townsville, 11 Squadron at Richmond. Yep. So I got posted to Richmond. At the end of 67, we ended up being uh, sent over to America uh, to train on the the Orions, the P-3B Orions, which were replacing the the Neptunes. And uh, we were training over in America uh, to to bring the the aircraft back again. And I believe there were 10 that were in the original purchase contract for the P-3Bs. All right, so tell us about the P3Bs. I mean, at the museum we have a, a P3C, number 760. What's the difference yes. between uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the B and the C? Well, uh, the, the difference as far as the, the operators were concerned, uh, down the back of the aircraft, there was very little difference uh, in the front end of it uh, for the pilots and flight engineers, very little difference at all. But uh, down the back end was quite quite different. Um, the, the general layout uh, was uh, was different, uh, uh, but the equipment that was on board was, was quite different. We got the uh, the first of the RAAF ones uh, early in uh, 1968, and uh, we were using them from there on to to uh, get used to the aircraft, get used to the equipment, and. Uh, prepare to, to fly them back to Australia. Um, and uh, things we, didn't go according to plan, I believe, in uh, April of that year. Yes, on uh, the 11th of April, uh, our, our crew was uh, scheduled to uh, uh, do a, a three-hour sortie of uh, local training, circuits and bumps and local uh, flying around the, the area and uh, we did this uh, the pilots had decided that uh, they would each do uh, eight landings and uh, because there were, we were only doing circuits and bumps the skipper had said to the crew that uh, as long as I've got minimum crew uh, the rest of you uh, don't need to to come on this trip if you don't want to. We ended up only with eight people on the aircraft. Mm-hmm. But um, we took off at, uh, at one o'clock and uh, the skipper was in the left-hand seat 
it's uh, Tom Trinder. And uh, he'd said to me, yeah, look, Gordon, I, I was on the, I was doing radio at that stage. Uh, getting used to the radio was just slightly different to what I'd been used to in, as a case runner in that year. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said to me, look, uh, seeing you've got little to do, why don't you keep a tab of the number of landings that each of us has done? Uh, because we need that information uh, later on for the authorization book. Right. And uh, I did a, a tick of uh, each landing that uh, Tom Trinder did. Uh, he did his lot. And then uh, uh, he swapped over with uh, Mick Dunn. And Mick Dunn was the co pilot. Mick went into the left hand seat. Uh, we were all set to, to do the, the next uh, eight uh, landings. And uh, on this particular landing, uh, I felt the aircraft land, so I, I did a, a tip for, for Mick, and next thing there was another bump, and I thought, that's strange. That landing was a good landing. I, we shouldn't have had a second bump there. And I looked out the window, and all I could see was... was uh, uh, flames and sparks coming from underneath the port wing. Uh, I immediately uh, yelled out through the intercom, fire in the port wheel, fire in the port wheel, and alerted everybody else in the aircraft that uh, we had problems. And uh, we went down the runway to turn out the, the oleo, the port oleo had broken, and... Uh, uh, it had scooted off across the the runway and across the airfield, uh, right through all about twenty Orions on the other side of the field, uh, and missed every one of them. Didn't didn't hit one aircraft. <laughs> very very lucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, so this is the landing gear strut, isn't it? That failed. Is that right? Uh, yes, the, the, the strut uh, with, with the wheel on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, wing had dropped obviously uh, the propellers had uh, hit the ground and, and shattered uh, speared through the uh, the engines uh, broken the fuel lines and uh, the aircraft uh, was, uh, was on fire straight away mm-hmm. uh, we went down the runway and did a, a 270 degree turn back through the flames and uh uh, when we, uh, I, I, I immediately thought, I know what's going to happen here. Uh, the aircraft fuselage might very well be in a situation where we can. I, I know we can only get out over the starboard wing. Mm. And I thought, uh, if uh, if anything happens there, we're not going to get out of this aircraft at all. So uh, I, I immediately uh, undid my seatbelt went to go back to take out the starboard overwing hatch to make sure that we could get out that the fuselage it hadn't been warped. Uh, anyway, I, I got up from the seat, the radio seat, and turned around to go back, and all I could see was daylight on uh, the right-hand side of the seat, all the uh, debris uh, that was coming through the, the fuselage, it cut through the fuselage, and... Uh, the the toilet was uh, was right opposite that as well, and 
it was there was a terrific amount of damage uh, done there, and I thought this is stupid. I'm not going to go through there because with all this uh, propellers and engine bits going mm. coming through the fuselage, yeah, uh, that I might be history. <laughs> yeah, so I thought the heck with it. I, I, I went up and I uh, jumped uh, jumped on the floor in the uh, cockpit. Uh, where the behind the uh, flight engineer's seat, yep. and uh, stayed there, braced myself there uh, with the uh, spare of the flight engineer. The two of us were there, and uh, uh, we uh, braced ourselves until the aircraft came to rest. And then I went down, and uh, as it turned out, the navigator had uh, uh, taken the hatch out. Uh, it was just behind where he was sitting anyway, and uh, uh, he uh, he had taken the, the hatch out, and he'd gone out of the aircraft by the time I got there. Uh, I was the second out of the aircraft, and uh, uh, got out over the wing and uh, jumped from the wing onto the ground and injured my feet. Uh, and I've suffered ever since with in the jar, the feet and the ankles, knees and hips. And uh, yeah, arthritis has, has gone right through me. Uh, replaced my right ankle. Both knees have been replaced. Mm. Uh, right hip has been replaced. Uh, left shoulder has been replaced. And my right shoulder now is heading for a replacement as well. You've got a drop of three or four metres, haven't you, off that wing onto to, yeah. to the hard surface. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. It didn't look that, uh, that far when I jumped. Mm. <laughs> mm. But as I was second out at night, I jumped. I was out through flames. Mm. It was on fire when I got out. Really? And uh, the, the agents uh, got out safely. The only other injury was to the captain, and he bumped his knee on the centre console in the, in the cockpit as he was getting out. But uh, everybody else got out uh, safely without injury. Now, had uh, had we had the full crew of 12 people, there might very well have been a problem with the, the last couple of guys of uh, trying to get out of course. Uh, with the, the flames and uh, damage to the aircraft. After we got back out and ran, ran away from the aircraft, uh, one of the chaps had his camera. Uh, he was taking photos of the uh, of the fire, and uh, uh, we got back and we were standing around watching the, the rest of the fuselage burn up. And one of the Americans said to us, uh, "Who told you to get out?" <laughs> I said, "I beg your pardon." Mm. He said, "Who told you to get out?" And this reflects the, mm. the attitude of the U.S. Navy people. Yeah. And I said to him, you must be kidding. I said, we had flames on our backside. Who did that devil, do you think, told us to get out? We practice our drills. We know what to do. Nobody had to tell us to get out, and we didn't have to ask approval to get out. We knew what to do. So uh, I said, that's why all of us got out safely. Now, I have a couple of photographs, as you mentioned, of 296 on fire, and uh, we'll post those along with this recording so people can see the damage. Obviously, the aircraft was completely destroyed. Because of the uh, early warning that I'd given everybody uh, to the, the danger, uh, I, was, uh, I was awarded a, what's called a, a green entry in my logbook. Uh, 
which is uh, a commendation. Rather than get a medal, you get a, a, a green entry in your logbook. Hmm. So, uh, yes, we're, we're very grateful that all eight of you were able to exit without serious injury, although you did, as you say, um, sustain some lifelong injuries as a result of that. And uh, what, what was the problem? What caused this strut to fail? What did they discover? Well, the uh, undercarriage, port undercarriage, uh, had a crack in it, as it turned out. We found out that initially it had a crack in it and it was submitted to uh, uh, Lockheed, uh, who uh, did their, their check on it, and they obviously did it, and rejected it because it had a crack. And we heard that uh, it was rejected and sent back to the manufacturer, who apparently put another coat of uh, chrome work over it, sent it back to uh, uh, Lockheed, and I can only assume that Lockheed didn't do uh, a, a check on it the second time, mm-hmm. but put it on the aircraft. So it went on the aircraft with a crack in it. <sighs> uh, so it was faulty right from the word go. It had only done 16 landings before it broke. Yes, I believe that aircraft had only flown 23 hours or something like that when this happened. And so what's the process then, Gordon? You, you've, you've escaped from this uh, crash site. What, what, what happens immediately afterwards to you eight? Well, immediately after that on that day, uh, we, we went up to the, uh, uh, the room that was being used as an orderly room and uh, we immediately uh, wrote our version of the accident. Mm. Uh, we said exactly what we remembered of the, the accident. It was fortunate that the, the admin uh, was an ex-RAF uh, air crew, uh, and uh, as soon as he realised uh, that the aircraft uh, was an AAF aircraft, uh, he said one to, to one of these guys, you go down and get a dozen glasses. Another one, you go down, here's some money. Go down to the canteen and, and get a bottle of scotch. And by the time we got up there, uh, we each had a, a nip of scotch to steady our nerves. But they had a board of inquiry and they found that uh, the, the undercarriage leg had, uh, had broken. Uh, it was no fault of the crew. But we had bought the, our aircraft from the US Navy. And that's where the problem mm. arose. Because we had to sue the U.S. Navy, and the U.S. Navy had to sue Lockheed, mm. and uh, Lockheed—they uh, they came to an to agreement, but uh, the money uh, changed hands, and the new aircraft uh, uh, was uh, was sent over. Six oh five, I think, was the 605, number. Six oh five. That's right. So by September the following year, I think. Uh, 605 came to replace or the loss of 296. We all just uh, got on with our work and uh, eventually uh, a few weeks later loaded the aircraft uh, in, uh, instead, of, instead of 296 uh, we ended up uh, with uh, 294 our crew uh, flew back to Australia they had a big uh, welcome ceremony there. 
with a new aircraft, uh, Edinburgh. Our, our families had all come over from uh, Sydney to, uh, uh, to to Edinburgh. So we uh, settled down into uh, Edinburgh with the B3Bs, so exciting aircraft, mm-hmm. because it was the first maritime aircraft that we had where we could stand upright uh, through the length of the aircraft, the length of the fuselage. They're incredibly spacious inside, aren't they? They are. Oh, yeah, but, you yeah, know, yeah, I've, yeah. I've crawled over the spar of the Neptune and, you know, looked around inside our Neptune and then, you know, you, you compare that, you go across to the Orion and, as you say, you stand upright, it's spacious, it's insulated, it's it's uh, an amazing step forward in terms of crew comfort uh, and capacity for instrumentation and um, so on, yeah. Yes, well, we had, had a galley down the back of the... Uh, the Neptune, but there was nothing compared to the galley and a couple of seats there for the crew mm. at, the, at the back of the Orion. And bunks uh, for uh, for crew resting. and uh, Yes. And you even had a and toilet, mate. <laughs> yes. Yes, which is far better than the toilet, <laughs> toilet facilities in the Neptune, I can tell you. <laughs> pretty, pretty crude. <laughs> but, uh, yes, there was even a toilet in the, for the Orion. You know, look, I really appreciate you telling us this story because, uh, you know, we're touching on a very difficult topic and uh, one that, um, you know, can't have always been easy to look back on and re- and reflect on. Um, but, you know, we're pleased that all eight of you, you know, um, were safe and uh, that uh, you were able to continue your career after that. It's been, it's been an honour, mate, to hear your voice and to hear you describe you know, your career and uh, particularly that incident where you put your life on the line and you're here to tell the tale. So can I just say, Gordon, thank you so much for talking to us. It's a pleasure, Gary. It's a pleasure. So that's our episode. Thanks, folks, for listening. I am sorry to say that there will be no episode next Saturday. We will have a break for one week before the next episode is available. I'm travelling for work overseas for the next nine or ten days and won't be able to get to that, so I do apologise for that. But we will be back in a couple of weeks' time to have a a talk to a, a gentleman who has been involved for many years just as a private individual, a private citizen, looking for the wrecks of aircraft, particularly significant wartime aircraft, but not just them, to uh, find often aircraft wrecks that have been lost and uh, note, note their positions and find them. So that's a very interesting conversation with Rick Wilkins in the next episode in a couple of weeks' time. Don't forget the Queensland Air Museum is open from 10 till 4 every day except Christmas Day and Good Friday, and we would love to see you. Come on down and visit us soon. Bye for now.